0: seems like whenever you're talking about big strategic developments around the world, you go back far enough and you find Winston Churchill talking about it. Over a hundred years ago, when he was uh, the first Lord of the Admiralty, before he was the Prime Minister, Britain faced the uh, question of, do we run our Navy off of homegrown coal or imported oil? And Churchill decided to switch the Navy over to oil-based fuel because it gave better performance for the warfighting capabilities. And his answer to the security was, yes, it's imported, but security lies in diversity and diversity alone is his concept.
1: That's Mark Finley, a fellow in energy and global oil at the Baker Institute and formerly BP's U.S. energy economist. It's been over nine months since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This event set off a hard scramble in Europe to replace lost natural gas supplies, and there was a ripple effect being felt in the U.S., I'm Terry Vishwanath, the Energy Economist at CoBank, and I want to explore the developments in the U.S. natural gas market, and in particular, how cooperatives might be handling the increased fuel cost resulting from the European energy crisis. I'm joined by my co-host and Managing Director, Tamara Reynolds. Hello, Tamara.
2: Hey, Terry. The start of winter seems like the right time to have this conversation, especially since natural gas prices already broke through $10 per MMBTU this summer. We haven't seen this level of pricing in more than a decade. And while prices have come down, it's too early to write off the possibility of revisiting those levels. So to understand where our energy bills might be headed this winter, we talked to Charlie Blanchard, head of research for Mercuria Energy Group, one of the world's largest independent energy and commodity groups. Charlie is author of the book, The Extraction State, A History of Natural Gas in America. Here's what he had to say.
3: The story this year, uh, and really like when I say this year, probably the last 14 months or 15 months has been a commodity bull market, right? A broad commodity bull market that certainly included uh, U.S. natural gas. So we hit, um, you know, not record prices, but prices that we hadn't hit since, you know, uh, 13 years ago. Um, You know, we almost traded to $10, but we spent a lot of time in the and the eights and nines, and that compares to, you know, a long period when we were in the twos and threes. If you're very short on storage, you're not going to trade that much lower just because it's the summer, right? So even though the issue isn't acute in the summer, the possibility of an acute issue in the winter will filter back into high prices in the summer. And so that's what we saw basically this entire summer. This year, we basically... Ended the summer, so ended the injection season with about 3.6 trillion cubic feet in storage. Right. Um, so what does that mean? What's the what, you know is that is that high or low? Well, the in November or rather in late October 2018, we only had 3.2 billion cubic feet in storage. Why were prices so much higher now than they were in 2018? The main thing that's different is that we export a lot of LNG. And therefore, we need to take into account the price of gas in Europe, which is much higher. So that's the biggest difference. We essentially uh, are tied to, and not necessarily directly, but in this indirect way, we're tied to the price of gas globally. And that makes us tied to events in Russia. And if we cut off exports, we need those prices to kind of converge, right, in order to incentivize exporters or disincentivize exporters from 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 exporting right so we keep the gas here that's fine but in order to keep the gas here we need to go to european prices but that wasn't always the case um it wasn't the case because we didn't have lng exports but it also wasn't the case because we had coal not only do we not have the coal plants that burn coal and make electricity we don't have the coal itself even for those plants that are still around so that means that the only lever we have left if we had a cold winter, would be to stop exports because otherwise we were just pushing on a string.
2: So Charlie highlights that in the absence of being able to massively shift electric generation from natural gas to coal, the only option is for domestic prices to rise high enough to divert those U.S. supplies that would otherwise be bound to Europe or Asia.
1: That's exactly the point he's making. Over the summer, the US emerged as the largest LNG exporting nation, basically exporting the same amount of natural gas that is burned in the residential sector, natural gas that is used to heat homes. Does this mean that we're linked to higher global prices? Having had responsibility for developing the annual BP statistical review, I thought Mark Finley might be just the right person to ask about this. Here's our conversation. Mark, what do you think about natural gas globalization? are we really experiencing a market that is
0: clearly connected
1: with Europe and Asia?
0: I think we're heading in that direction, but we're not there yet. The real story for connecting to the world is liquefied natural gas. Uh, And the reason is simple. A pipeline can only go to where the pipeline ends. A liquefied natural gas tanker can literally stop in the middle of the ocean and turn around and go anywhere in the world that has the capacity to receive it. Um, And so that's the channel by which there is the potential to connect. And the reason why I say we're not there yet is because essentially the. US LNG export system is running flat out. Uh, and so you know there is a kind of a baseload of LNG exports, but beyond that, it's still dependent the domestic price of natural gas really depends on how domestic supply and demand balance.
1: We're only as connected as long as the LNG capacity here at home is not tapped out and we have the ability to actually put more product into the marketplace when it's needed.
0: Yes. In terms of the domestic price setting, what really matters is, as you said, is there a spare in the system uh, that can be used to ramp up and down depending on how situation here compares with the situation globally? When the capacity is running flat out as it is now- then it doesn't matter what happens in the rest of the world on the upside. You know, it, it limits the upside risk because you can't force any more gas into the export system. One of the reasons why Saudi Arabia is so influential and so important in the oil market, yes, it's a big producer, but uniquely in the history of the world's oil market, the country has invested to maintain a buffer of spare production capacity that it can tap into in times of crisis. You know, and when the oil market gets into trouble is when Saudi Arabia and the other members of the so-called OPEC plus group run out of that spare capacity.
1: It's interesting, especially because the U.S. has become the largest exporting nation at a time that we're seeing this global conflict in Europe with Russia. So Russia's stepping back from the table and the U.S. is stepping in, but I'm not sure that those positions are perfectly aligned.
0: While the United States may be the biggest exporter of liquefied natural gas in the world, it is not the biggest exporter of natural gas in the world. Uh, Russia is by far a bigger exporter. Uh, but again, its exports are predominantly in the form of pipeline gas uh, and predominantly to to Europe. Um, and kind of what we're seeing now with the crisis is that as Europe has been struggling to find new Uh, ways to, uh, new sources of natural gas. Uh, And as Russia has been squeezing Europe, uh, you know, to exert geopolitical leverage, um, the United States has tried to help, but, you know, constrained by the fact that our capacity to export more liquefied natural gas is exhausted, um, and that we have existing contracts to service other countries with those exports, including big markets in Asia, like China and Japan. Um, and so, you know, the flexibility of the system isn't isn't quite, um, you know, it doesn't match what we have on the oil side.
2: Terry, in my mind, the conversation with Mark begs the question on when this moment of globalization might occur. When will events in either Europe or Asia directly translate to price signals for the U.S. domestic market?
1: Well, you know, Charlie Blanchard gave an excellent response to the are we there yet question. Here's what he had to say
3: We are basically not increasing exports until late 2024. And really, it's not until late 25 and 26 when we go and basically double the amount of exports we have now. No change for a while. And then, you know, kind of this, you know, boom, uh, we're doubling. Right now, we are at capacity out of uh, you know, LNG exports, right? So that is why we are trading you know, essentially $6, whereas Europe is trading you know, maybe $35 and you know, the rest of the world is maybe trading $30, right? So that's a big, and, and the variable costs aren't that much. The variable costs are maybe $2 to ship it, right? So you know, right now the spreads are massively wide and that's because we're doing as much as we can. So we can't close the gap, right? We can't export more um, to bring their prices down, which would also bring our prices up. And you know, you know my thought, and I think a lot of the market um, would agree, in 2026 and 27 and 28 and beyond, when we have all this new capacity, it's very hard to imagine um, that we have the gas here at home to fill it. And what that means is it's going to cause the spread between global gas prices and U.S. gas prices to come in and come probably you know, screaming in. So then the next question is, well, does that mean our prices go up um, more or does it mean you know, global and European prices come down more? Frankly, I don't think anyone has the answer to it. But what we can say with relative confidence is that the spreads will come in quite dramatically.
1: And let's pick up on that point, you know, are we overbuilding? in the long run, you actually see higher domestic natural gas prices, especially as we look beyond 2025, say, and, and why is that?
3: It's because of the exports being, again, built primarily in 2025 and 2026. And it's, and it's also then it's because of like the rate of change, right? Because a lot of these LNG projects are coming online in, in quite rapid succession. Can you bring on even three, four, five BCF a day of production within a six-month period? It's happened before, um, but we're not in that world anymore. I don't think. And why aren't we in that world? I mean, some of it is the fact that we are kind of running out of the best locations in, in you know in, in shale. If you if you were able to somehow change that situation and build, you know. Ten billion cubic feet a day of new pipelines from you know Appalachia to the Gulf Coast. I, I think I, I think our prices are fine where they are. But we basically have you know kind of walled off Appalachia and and you know further Appalachian production from getting to the market. Most of the reasons <clears throat> essentially are people don't want to build more fossil fuel infrastructure.
1: I feel like we have had a lot of consumers, a lot of uh, power plant owners that have not had to hedge their fuel exposure because it's been prevalent, abundant, and cheap. Is that is that narrative changed?
3: It's still prevalent, and it's still mostly abundant, but it's just not cheap. It's just that you know we have we have to take into account now this insurance premium that you know. If it's cold enough, which it probably won't be, but if it is, we need to price out that risk of going to a very, very high global level.
2: There seems to be a clear message that we are quickly moving towards a structurally higher price fuel environment. The stalled process of building more pipelines, refineries, etc., means that we have to consider the physical limitations of the iron in the ground.
1: Absolutely. That's my take as well. This feedback is really important and has strong implications on how our electric cooperatives hedge their commodity risk, both the financial risk and the physical risk of getting gas to their
2: members. Following our conversations with these well-respected energy economists, I thought it would be helpful to get a tactical framework for hedging for our co-ops. I reached out to Charlie Harrell, the Director of Finance at CoServe Gas, and Gary Franzen, the Director of Energy Services at CoServe Electric. Closer Electric has been around since 1937, serving about 275,000 members in six counties around the DFW Metroplex. And it's actually my hometown co-op from where I grew up. The gas company was formed in 1998, serving 150,000 customers with annual demand of roughly 12 BCF.
1: That was a terrific conversation with two experts who have weathered the ups and downs of natural gas price cycles here in the U.S., and most importantly, they understand physical operational risk for procuring the fuel. Here's the conversation we had with them. The first response you're going to hear comes from Charlie Harrell, followed by Gary Franzen. So I want to understand, as you both consider the landscape in the market, how have your views changed with regard to energy procurement?
4: Over the, It's been a long two years. I'm not sure I can go through a year again. It's had some very definitive on us, such as now we're carrying much larger during the winter months, a much larger baseload than we were in the past. I mean, the main thing during the period is to mitigate the risk for the gas
5: prices. What, if I can elaborate, yeah. when Charlie says base load, what he is referring to is the amount of gas that we purchase a month in advance, uh, such that that amount of gas gets delivered every single day of the following month. So we're purchasing a higher quantity of gas to be delivered every single day of the upcoming month going forward. Uh, We used to try to minimize the need to inject during the the heating season, during the winter months. Inject storage. Inject into storage, correct. Um, But now we have accepted that We're better off having a higher volume of of base load as charlie referred it and when we have milder days in the winter and a warmer day in the winter and don't need as much gas used by our customers then we inject more of that into storage but that allows us a little more flexibility on the days when it does get really cold to not have to purchase so much or pull so much from storage on a daily basis
1: okay basically having a larger buffer
5: A larger buffer.
4: Yes. I think that's been one of the big changes. We've looked at some financial hedging, but that is very difficult. Where we're located is very difficult to find a good hedge financially, a financial hedge, because it's just not that liquid of a market for the hedging in this area. I think what we've come back to in hedging um, is that we it's actually storage. Storage is the true hedge you need. You need the physical hedge of it. And until URI happened, nobody really wanted additional storage. The prices were stable. Yeah, you had volatility. There's always been some in gas, but not the volatility we're seeing today. And so it's become a bigger commodity. Even some companies that I knew weren't going to increase their storage are now doing that. And we're the recipient of some of that.
1: Charlie, you had mentioned the difference between looking for a financial product that could best hedge Mm -hmm. and kind of getting back to the fact that, you know, when you need the gas, you need to make sure that you have it in place where you need it. So it sounds like the physical playbook that maybe you had, you know, possibly in the early 2000s is getting, you know, is, is, is seeing a a new fresh chapter.
4: It really is. I mean, that's what it came back to is that, you got to have the gas to get it and you have to have a way to transport it into there going into the storm we had a maximum capacity of 2.2 bcf and by the end of 2024 hopefully going into 2025 we'll have somewhere around 4 bcf storage so, i mean that's a that's a lot of gas you can pull out given that you know we're in texas we're not going to have an Alaskan winter, hopefully. It's not going to last all winter. It's going to last for four, five, six days at the worst usually. And that gives us the ability to have that gas coming into the system when you really need it. It really That's really what our idea of protecting our customers, mitigating
5: that price risk is. Another thing that we have done as we negotiate these new storage agreements is we have put more emphasis on the daily withdrawals, the maximum amount okay. that we can withdraw in an individual day. Uh, typically for a storage unit, that's that's a relatively small percentage of the overall amount of gas that you have in storage that mm-hmm. you are allowed to withdraw in a day, because they don't want to disrupt the storage. But we have been negotiating for higher daily withdrawal rates, again, to give us more flexibility for the extreme weather days, you know, such as a URI when we've got a tremendous amount of heating demand to supply.
4: Technically if you did the calculation we have 6 turns a year which is very quick. But we don't have withdrawal rights during the summer. Only during the winter and we don't have in- injection rights during the winter, only during the summer. Now that will I'm sure you can get some gas in there. But you know, now we're looking at other ways to supplement that. We've talked to other gas marketing companies and one of the things they can do is we don't have to inject we can just buy their storage from them and they'll transfer it over to us.
1: Interesting. Interesting. So do you think more participants out there are looking at, because it's also been a problem on the pipes, is they have had interruptible, um, not firm rights. And, and so possibly also seeing completely through the supply chain, you know, firming up that, that relationship, right? To make sure you have the supply
4: yeah, and right now, all of our transportation is firm. The Storage is firm. We only buy firm gas, uh, except during year when we get any type of gas we could get. <laughs> <laughs> right. Our customers, 98% of our 151,000 are residential customers, and we serve human needs. So we need firm gas. We need to know what's coming in to protect our customers.
5: So CoServe Gas historically, for, for many years, has maintained firm gas capacity mm-hmm. rights and delivery rights. But we have heard through the industry, just as you mentioned, Terry, that many of the other gas offtakers, you know, both gas distribution companies like ourselves, but power plants too, yeah. are really looking to try to firm up their, their delivery rights, their capacity and delivery rights.
2: The Reinforced Playbook that we heard about from CoServe also includes a very robust program of member communication and coordination. More than two out of three Texans, or 69% of the state, lost electricity at some point during winter storm URI. One of the defining moments for our co-ops was the relatively positive perception that their members had due to the coordinated efforts to communicate what was happening during the storm.
1: As we heard from our guests, the U.S. natural gas market is evolving, and it's important that our cooperatives plan and pivot with those changes to ensure that they continue to reliably serve their co-op members. CoServe's procurement strategies demonstrate a thoughtful response to the changing marketplace. First, they're going to keep a higher level of baseload gas on hand, and they're going to make sure they have flexible but firm delivery options to deliver that
2: gas. I want to thank our guests for sharing their insights with us. Join us next month where we sit down with the Exawatt team as they discuss the global outlook for battery energy storage and the supply chain challenges ahead. Goodbye until then.